Hello, Weird Studies listeners. Thanks for tuning in for one of our occasional off-schedule Patreon sneak peeks. This is JF. The audio extras we record for our Patreon supporters are different from the flagship episodes. They're shorter, less structured, more improvisational, and often that makes for some pleasant surprises. We like to release one to our wider audience from time to time to give them a sense of what our patrons get for supporting Weird Studies. The extra you're about to hear on Worlds and Stories was released on September 14th, and we're happy to make it available for everyone. Before we begin, however, I have a small announcement. Phil and I have partnered with Jeremy Johnson of NeuroLearning to offer an eight-week online course of lectures and group discussions beginning in just a few weeks. In this course, we'll be delving deeper into some of the big themes that have emerged thus far in the Weird Studies project. Ideas like Diviner's Time, The Zone, and The Trash Stratum. We're actively working on these and a bunch of other ideas for a book we're writing for Strange Attractor Press. We call that writing project Weirding, and that's also how we've titled the course. What does it mean to weird? It means seeking out the glitches and rifts in everyday life, the points where the ordinary gives way to the extraordinary, and the marvelous breaks through the mundane, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so much. And in the time we happen to live in, which people have started to describe as one of global weirding, the art of making things weird is more, we think, than a pastime for decadent esthetes. Increasingly, it's a survival strategy. That's why we envision this course as more than a philosophical exercise. We see it as a survival guide for the weird age. The course begins on October 25th, 2022, and runs until mid-December. Each week will feature a live lecture, followed two days later by an open group discussion with participants. All the lectures and discussions will be recorded so that people whose time zones or schedules don't allow them to participate live can do so on their own time. Weird Studies patrons get a discount, so if you're a supporter of the show, please enroll using the link we've posted on Patreon. To find out more, go to neurolearning.com. We hope to see you on October 25th. And now on with the special bonus extra release on worlds and stories. Enjoy the conversation. I guess that this is also a kind of return right now because this is the first extra we're recording since before our trip, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I like doing these. Yeah, me too. It's completely different from the flagship show. I mean, not completely different. It's still you and me talking, but... uh, Feels different. I like not having anything in the way of a plan before we get talking. Yeah. Of course, the danger with that is that we might just stare at one another for a while trying to remember how it is we do these things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Read any good books lately? (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading a book about Gilbert Simondon. Have you heard of him? No. Um, Unless unless I do, but I'm just thrown off by your... I don't know uh, how... Your stylish French pronunciation. Uh, how would, I don't know how he, his name is pronounced in English. Probably Sim, Simon, 
Simondon, Simondon, people try with, or Simondon. <laughs> uh, he's a French philosopher of technology who, he was a contemporary of Deleuze, and Deleuze was one of the very few people to actually reference him, reference him in, in, the, in his work. He wrote very sporadically, or published very sporadically, and seemed more interested in, uh, in teaching than, than writing, it seems. But anyways, very interesting philosopher of technology, and a very different take on technology from what we're used to. Uh, at least you and me, it seems, in the, the water we float in, it seems very romantic and very kind of like, there seems to be a kind of um, a resistance to technology, even though we're constantly kind of caveating ourselves about that. and. Right. But uh, Simondon was a great affirmer of technology, you know, uh, but in a very interesting way. But I, I'm just starting that book, so I can't really get into the details. Very interesting. There was a student uh, in the neurolearning course I did in the spring who recommended him for because he has a very interesting uh, theory of individuation, of how things become individuals uh, that she urged me to look into. So I'm looking forward to getting to those chapters. Reading that, huh. um, I just read uh, Byung-Chul Han's The Disappearance of Ritual, which I would love for you to read. It's a very short book, and it's so good, and it's so on topic, and it's been floating around. The title has been floating around the Discord for a while amongst our our listeners, so um, very, very strongly recommend that book. Uh, I have yeah. read one of his books, on the one on beauty. Although I don't know if I finished it, but uh, I was very positively impressed by that book. And I remember yeah. saying to you, like, oh, dude, we should we, we should talk about this book because it's totally right down the middle weird study stuff. So I get the feeling like everything this guy writes is kind of in our wheelhouse. Oh, absolutely. It, it, was it Agony of Eros, that one? No, no, it was Saving Beauty. I remember you mentioning it. Uh, I don't remember too much of his arguments in that book because it's been a while. but. Uh, yeah, I, I I actually have been thinking lately that I would like to have a conversation about ritual, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe this would be the the way in. He's interesting. He's a he's kind of like a like a philosophical essayist, right? So he's not going to bother much with arguing. He's going to make proclamations. <laughs> he's going to tell you how it is uh, in in a very cool way. I think um, very intuitive. It's just a really interesting thinker. So that I, I read that actually on the train in uh, the UK. So I don't know why I'm bringing it up now. I, and I, of course, I've been reading and kind of rereading parts of Technic and Magic because we're recording a show on that. Hopefully later this week. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've been enjoying thinking about that book. Uh, I read some Conan stories too. I read R Red Nails. I've been rereading a fantasy book that I read several years ago called The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. Mm. It's not an especially profound book, but I do enjoy it very much. Addison, I believe, is or was a professor of something, or at least somebody with a PhD, somebody with professional level knowledge of how languages work. And so the major failing of this book is that she clearly nerded the fuck out in developing a language system for the elves. It's basically about a half-elvish, half-goblin, um, and goblins, I guess, in this world are a little bit like orcs or something. Like um, goblins? Yeah. 
I guess goblin always means goblin, right? Well, or I mean, it's just a I kind know of what goblin. you're. I know what you're saying, though. You're, you're like goblins in fairy tales tend to be solitary or kind of like little ogres, whereas yes. in fantasy literature they've become a kind of species with their own kind of barbaric yeah. society kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And with all of those implications, so like the the goblins in this world are black skin, red eyed. Uh, with an underslung jaw, they tend to be squatter, stockier, stronger. Uh, so you know some recognizable tropes from from fantasy. Uh, and the elves are, you know, tall and willowy and pale with gray eyes. You know, so right. Um, right. So so what happens in the very beginning of this novel? The main character is somebody who has been exiled from the court. He is the child of the emperor's ill-fated marriage to a goblin princess that was attempted as a kind of a, a diplomatic mm. uh, move. And um, the emperor, who you don't learn much about, but clearly is a complicated individual, always had a peculiar dislike of his, of, uh, his fourth consort, his fourth wife. And uh, from childhood, this this uh, half-goblin, half-elvish prince has been exiled to the boonies. And unexpectedly, an accident, turns out not to be an accident, kills both the emperor and all of the other claimants to the throne, all of the other heirs, thrusting this obscure and unloved uh, half-goblin prince into the position of emperor. And it's, uh, you know, the main character... Maya is a likable sort of character, you know, young man pushed into this crazy situation, suddenly having to walk into a role where his every move and utterance is encrusted with ancient ritual and precedent. Um, and the whole novel ends up being a kind of minute dissection of court manners where in many ways nothing much happens, but it's a little bit like, you know, uh, like an Austin, Jane Austen type novel where all of the action comes yeah. in little, mi little micro encounters, things set at a ball. Yeah. Um, that, Manners. That cut, that cut deep. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, implications that end up, you know, like a, a, a conversational overtone that ends up bringing an empire close to tottering, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I'm into it. I'm mm. like, why aren't there more high fantasy novels that revolve around refined manners? I, I bet the, the whole thing, I never actually got around to saying this, is that the author got so into an extremely complicated set of linguistic um, patternings and names and titles and so on. Uh, that the names are absolutely impossible to keep track of. Right. Um, because they all have similar prefixes and suffixes. And you're like, wait, who the fuck are we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Aside from that, there's a great example of how you can let um, a, a certain streak of uncompromising nerdishness yeah. run away with you to the detriment of uh, the entertainment product you were attempting to create. But aside from that rather small blemish, I find this novel captivating enough that i'm reading it a second time which i seldom do these days with novels yeah that sounds it sounds really cool it reminds me a little bit of gormenghast i guess um just the, the focus on ritual and the inner workings of a kind of uh aristocratic milieu you know yeah 
I'll check it out. That's really interesting. This is a, a perennial problem in fantasy writing. It's the the world building ends up destroying your your story. You know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. That that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, Tolkien was uh, of course primarily obsessed and concerned with language, um, and I think that much of Middle Earth evolved from his tinkering with this fictional elvish language, which predates all of the histories he wrote and all that. But he had a nice way of making them work together. I cannot stand you, the, 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 the criticisms you constantly hear about Tolkien, um, that the descriptions are too long, that the poetry interrupts the action, that type of bullshit it's just like I yeah of course in retrospect now that we've turned fantasy into a fucking the equivalent of the literary Big Mac you would then criticize the guy who invented the hamburger for putting <laughs> like you know horseradish on it um, but I find that Tolkien's very good at making language um, the languages of his fictional universe work with the fiction and kind of and to me you know the, the descriptions of landscapes are my fucking favorite parts of the Lord of the Rings I love those parts. I love the whole, the, how detailed the Shire is and how you get to know every freaking knoll and hillock uh, as, as the hobbits mm -hmm. traverse the landscape. I, I love those parts. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I tend to always want to see the idios, idiosyncrasies of a writer, of an author, as instead of seeing them as like, oh, this would be great if it weren't for this fatal flaw. Not, not that I'm not, I haven't read the book you're rereading, so. But. It's good to tr always try to see those idiosyncrasies as instrumental to what makes those parts of the book that you like work, you know? Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Just, and, and, and indeed, the obsessive concern with a kind of self-consistent set of linguistic rules gives this novel a character, a, 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 um, a consistency very much its own that you would miss if it weren't there. So I shouldn't be such a philistine as to complain no, about no, how that... confusing the names are. Because you're quite right. Those things actually this is a great example of something we were talking about in the Poe episode. Uh, we were talking about like secondary qualities that become primary. Right. Or supposedly or those characteristics that supposedly belong to the 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 realm of ornament or decoration mm -hmm. actually might turn out to be primary. Yeah. And uh, as it were, load-bearing structures, uh, and yeah, so 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 it is. I think with like Tolkien's descriptions, actually, I you have got me off on a favorite subject, which is a essay by Henry Jenkins, who is a scholar of media, who among other things wrote a marvelous book ca called "What Made Pistachio Nuts," which is about <laughs> vaudeville. The title itself, I think, is from some corny old vaudeville joke. And it's about vaudeville as a whole system of culture that right. heavily informed film, uh, vaudeville, uh, film being in many ways the successor of vaudeville. Yeah. Um, and uh, he is that rare kind of media studies, cultural studies professor who has a real taste for aesthetic consistency of things. Where he doesn't doesn't just dissolve the way stories are uh, into more or less outside considerations of sociology and such like. Right. Not saying that that itself is an illegitimate approach, but 
but it's nice to find somebody who really likes to stick with the internal feeling and consistency of worlds. And the internal logic of, a, of an aesthetic world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's his whole thing. And so he, ha- he wrote an essay that's oft- often cited uh, called Game Design as Narrative Architecture. And in it, he, he wrote it, I don't know, about 20 years ago. Uh, he weighed in on a, a dispute that at times got pretty envenomed in the early days of video game scholarship. Oh, you're talking about the dispute between ludology and nar- narratology? Is that what you're referring yes. to? Yeah, exactly. Yes, I am. Which is weirdly... Um, I, I, you know, I've been reading about that. It's strangely connected to our two-tier game theory that the, the a game has a material stratum and a and a kind of imaginal stratum. Um, yeah, because the one is narrative and the other one is is system. You know. Um, anyways, go go on. Well, he that is to say, Jenkins ended up writing about. Uh, weighing in on this and coming up with, I think, an intelligent and defensible middle position between the extremes of the ludology and uh, narratology people. And one of the things he wanted to point out is that narrative means something different in video games than it does in a lot of genres, but it also, it shares with a lot of fantasy and so-called genre fiction something of the same character, which is a focus on world building, yeah, on traversing a world. So one of the ways that the ludologists had of understanding what makes games unusual, or video games particularly, is an idea that comes from a scholar named Espen Arseth of erdotic literature. Er, er, sorry, not erdotic, ergodic with a G. And ergodic literature is basically think of something like the the difference between a book like the I Ching and a book like I don't know a novel Pride, like Pride and Prejudice or something yeah yeah that with Pride and Prejudice you are supposed to read it in order right it's a codex book you start at page one and you read through to the end um, with the I Ching you traverse the book you don't read it in the same way but you could say that you traverse the text. And you traverse the text through some uh, some mechanism, but the text is, as it were, a landscape for you to crisscross at your own initiative uh, and uh, and at your own design. Mm. And so, and that design might be random, as in throwing the coins and and choosing which chapter of the I Ching to go into, but you're playing a game with the book in order to figure out where to go. Uh, but it could be something like playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, where there is a sort of a rough game path, like, you know, free the divine beasts and defeat Ganon, but you are able to decide your own path through that world. The path, the world just exists yeah. as a fully realized entity waiting in potentia. But the game will never give you a single track the way a novel does. You make the track. You tra- that's is what it means to traverse a text, right? Right. Ergodic texts are ones that require a non-trivial uh, and investment of effort to traverse. Anyway, Jenkins points out that 
there is something of that quality of traversing a world in fantasy. And he points out what you just did, that people tend to treat those aspects of, say, Tolkien's writings or Victor Hugo's writings or any number of writers, those aspects of world building as being secondary qualities. But he's like, actually, for a text of this kind, they're absolutely primary. And I'm going to read you a little bit of his essay. And he points out that when gamer magazines want to describe the experience of gameplay, he was writing 20 years ago when there still were magazines, they're more likely to reproduce maps of the game world than to recount the stories in the the games. And then he says, before we talk about game narratives, then we need to talk about game spaces. And he talks about how video games generally, um, space comes before story. Uh, not that story is unimportant, but that th- stories are always spatialized. And so stories always emergent. Uh, I'll get, yeah. th- I have something to say about all this, but I'll let you finish. Re- yeah. Do, well, I'll actually yeah. read the, the relevant bit. He says, as such games fit within a much older tradition of spatial stories, which often take the form of heroes, odysseys, quest myths, or travel narratives. The best works of J.R.R. Tolkien, Jules Verne, Homer, L. Frank Baum, the guy who wrote Wizard of Oz, or Jack London, fall loosely within this tradition, as does, for example, the sequence in War and Peace, which describes Pierre's aimless wanderings across the battlefield at Borodino. Often such works exist on the outer borders of literature. They are much loved by readers, to be sure, and passed down from one generation to another, but they rarely figure in the canon of great literary works. How often, for example, has science fiction been criticized for being preoccupied with world-making at the expense of character psychology or plot development? These writers seem constantly to be pushing against the limits of what can be accomplished in a printed text, and thus their works fare badly against the aesthetic standards defined around classically constructed novels. Mm. In many cases, the characters, our guides through these richly developed worlds, are stripped down to the bare bones. Description displaces exposition, and plots fragment into a series of episodes and encounters. When game designers draw story elements from existing film or literary genres, they are most apt to tap those genres, fantasy, adventure, sci-fi, horror, war, which are most invested in world-making and spatial storytelling. Games, in turn, may more fully realize the spatiality of these stories, giving a much more immersive and compelling representation of their narrative worlds. Anyone who doubts that Tolstoy might have achieved his true calling as a game designer should reread the final segment of War and Peace, where he works through how a series of alternative choices might have reversed the outcome of Napoleon's Russian campaign. The passage is dead weight in the context of a novel, yet it outlines ideas which could easily be communicated in a god game like Civilization. Uh, This is so, this is great. I'm glad we landed here. Wow, this is awesome. Um, It's so apropos. Um, just two two other examples. Did you want to comment on what you just read before I? No, please. Okay. Uh, two other examples. The famous is it second or third chapter of uh, how's it called in English? Uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, where he's just uh-huh. describing a kind of aerial view of Paris. You know, it's fantastic. It's my favorite chapter in that book, and yet it's constantly derided as you know, it's the type of chapter you'll take out in the abridged version. Right? I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. So the thing though about Hugo and it's a lot of the romantic writers and certainly in the weird, because now we're moving back towards this idea of mood that we, we keep coming back to in, in, in the context of specifically of the weird effect. But I think that the, 
the weird is a subs is a, a particular way of doing what you're describing here. Is that whereas and and this is the problem I had as a screenwriter is that I've always instinctively seen plot as simply the clothesline on which you hang landscape. Like you you want plot in order to build a world. That's how yeah. I and it this caused me some problems in screenwriting, which is an, a hyper economical kind of way of writing where, uh, and the way people read today, it's just entirely plot driven. The same problem exists in Dungeons and Dragons that you're describing now. So the, the Dungeons and Dragons, the, the current edition is the fifth edition of the game. And it's, it's intensely narratological or narrative in its, hmm. in its uh, approach to the game. Whereas Dungeons and Dragons started as like intensely, what do you call it? Ergodic? Ergodic, yeah. Some people still play Dungeons and Dragons in this way. They use older editions or clones of older editions, and it's called the OSR, the old school revival uh, movement within Dungeons and Dragons. And the idea there is that the dungeon master doesn't come up with a story in which the characters of the players are cast. The dungeon master creates a landscape, a sandbox, as it's called, a world, which the characters should explore as they want to explore it, as they will. And the whole idea is that story is not something you start up. It's not something you put in at the front end. Story is the result of the choices that the characters make. Story emerges out of the interaction between the players and the environment. Right. Whatever happens is the story. Let's say you have a castle and you want them to scale the wall. So in a fifth edition kind of aesthetic, you would go, okay, well, I need to make sure they can get up the wall in order to get to you know the goblins who've invaded the castle. And that's where the story happens. It's their, their attempt to infiltrate the goblin stronghold. If the characters come up to the wall and they roll a climb check and fail, all of a sudden you're kind of you're going to panic as a kind of modern dm because you need to get the characters in the castle for the story to happen whereas in the mm. osr philosophy well it turns out that this is a story about guys who kind can't climb a wall that's the uh. story that's the story even if you end up with a kind of beckett like you know <laughs> waiting for Godot <laughs> guys standing at the face of a wall while the goblins are like plundering the inside of the castle well that's the story they and i, I tend to be i i think it's clear from how, how i'm presenting it i tend to be more in the osr way of thinking about role playing games but to me it touches on this idea of world building versus um uh storytelling and i think that jenkins is absolutely right when he describes token as a world builder first and foremost now few people would argue with that but a lot of people just automatically see that as a flaw in token something that we you must overcome if you're going to read the good bits in token whereas in fact maybe there's a case to be made that uh <laughs> that tradition goes all the way back to homer and um Maybe maybe that's why it's not surprising that very few people are reading Homer. Because when you're reading Homer, it's so much about set pieces. And not set pieces in the Tarantino kind of plotty way. Set pieces in the sense that it seems like Homer's trying to get Odysseus to the Isle of the Cyclops in order to get us to feel what it's like to be on the Isle of the Cyclops. It's, it's a catalog. It's a gazetteer. As much right. as it is a story. In fact, the story is an excuse to explore these strange lands that Odysseus encounters and, and discovers. And um, for me, personally, this is just my temperament. 
Um, when I read a book, even if I'm reading Jane Austen, I'm in it exclusively for the world. Like I, mm. I couldn't care less about plot ever. Um, in fact, when I start feeling, <laughs> when I start feeling the, the, the grinding gears of plot, I get bored. When I start feeling that things are happening in order to produce a kind of event, uh, I get turned off of a story. I, yeah, let's like in defense of that. And, and when we talk about weird fiction, it's the same thing. The plot exists for the sake of the mood, right? The mood is what you're trying to create. And the plot will serve that mood if you even need a plot at all. And there's a lot of stories by Thomas Ligotti, for instance, that hardly have any plot at all. And the, the goal is to create that mood. And mood is just a, a thin end word for a world. Um, a mood okay, is but, a world. Okay, but now having uh, put all of our chips on world, I've put them all. Shifted, not you shifted <laughs> them all off of plot. On, yeah. Well, I'm, I I tend to go along with this, obviously, because you and I are an atten, this two headed monster. Yeah, but that means we shouldn't agree on anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I guess. Yeah. No, but uh, I want to think of. I want to stick up for plot for just a second. So the way I'm thinking of plot, and I speak, by the way, as somebody who has never. Uh, seriously pursued any kind of narrative art, unlike yourself. So I'm... Uh, well, now you see why I've failed. <laughs> <laughs> you have differently succeeded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's an alternative it works, kind of success. It, it makes me a good game master. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to railroad my players all the time. And I can tell. I can tell the the listeners from personal experience. JF is the Mozart of this shit. He's the <laughs> best fucking DM you ever heard. Uh, no, seriously, we've got a really good little gaming group going. Uh, we're meeting this week, right? Yeah, on Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, can't wait. It's yeah. gonna be awesome. Yeah. Um, fuck, was I talking about? So, um. Plot. In, in defense plot. of plot now. Yeah. In defense of plot, like, I guess the way I think of plot as something that you want in a novel, for example, in the epic sci science fiction or fantasy novel, um, is a little bit like engineering. Like, you want to write a 500, 700-page book, like, when, like some doorstop of a fantasy novel. Um, for example, the first volume of the Mal Malazan Book of the Fallen oh, series, which so I good. recently finished, and which is an interesting book to invoke in this context because it was actually written as the byproduct of uh, an intense and long-range RPG campaign. Yeah. Um, er Erickson, is that his name? Steven Erickson, Canadian Steven author. Steven Erickson. I, I love that guy, yeah. Yeah, he and his collaborator, whose name escapes me, Esselmont. Uh, his last name okay. is Esselmont. I can't remember his first name. Yeah, they're okay. both they're both yeah, archaeologists. They, Anyways, very interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, they built this world and then started writing novels that take place in the world. And so there's like actually a kind of you can see the chain of causality there. Like world literally comes first, right? Um, so I love this book and it. And I, one thing I loved about it also is that its bones as a kind of working out of an RPG campaign are are visible. Like you can see the lines of the RPG world building logic 
behind it. Um, there are certain stories that become inevitable when you're doing an RPG, like uh, assembling a crew. Yeah, assembling a crew. At a certain crew, point, yeah, yeah. a bunch of people are going to come together to do a thing. Um, and so it definitely works with that logic. I love the I love the novel, and I'm planning on continuing this. In fact, just bought the next vo volume in the series. It's so good. But I have to say that there are moments where I'm like, okay, we got a 700 page novel here, and I think of like, what is it? A, a big ass book like that reminds me of a, like a, a a suspension bridge thrown out across a wide river or a bay, mm -hmm. right? the The wider a span that you have to bridge, the more fucking hardcore engineering you need to bring to bear you need to be cleverer and cleverer at how you are going to sustain that kind of weight the longer the span is the more ingenious your engineering has got to be and to me plot is the engineering that allows a span to hold up without collapsing and in the mm -hmm. yeah. first book of the Malazan, Book of the Fallen, I feel like the span maintains its integrity. I was able to read it from beginning to end with perfect satisfaction. But there are a couple of moments where shit gets real intense, where, uh, for example, in what happens with the Jaghut tyrant, yeah, uh, how that plot line is eventually resolved. I'm not going to go into it in case people want to read this and I don't want to spoil it for them. But uh, where I kind of got the feeling of like, that honestly feels like a slightly desperate improvisation of a hard pressed game master. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I, okay, so moments I think where making... the, the integrity wobbles a little bit and where you just sort of feel like this plot feels a bit ad hoc, like yeah. the, as, a, as it, we're traversing the world just fine. But that that creak, that's creaky right there. And that's a problem. I will agree with you that plot is engineering insofar as plumbing and electric is engineering. So I, I do think, I think plot is the plumbing and, and wiring of the, of the house. But um, I think, again, I think that to think in terms of plot, this is my own theory. And of course, there's no right or, or wrong here. This is just different ways of thinking about fiction. I find that the real ground the real engineering is character. And I think that if Stevenson has a flaw, it's that his characters are not. They you mean Erickson? What did I say? You said Stevenson. Oh, sorry. Steven Erickson. Which is a different, <laughs> a different epic fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that if Erickson has, a, has, a, has a, a flaw, let's call it quote unquote, it's at the level of character. Um, let's take another fantasy author of the same generation uh J george r r martin right song of ice and fire or game of thrones as most people right. call it it's the name of the first novel um, which is the only one i've read yeah of so, that series so the the great thing i mean you might not like the brutality of his books or the immorality of his worlds although i think that all of that serves a moral purpose ultimately in his um vision but you got to hand it to him that plot in his books are absolutely emergent. They emerge from character and from a kind of commitment to the randomness of events in a, in a, in a mm. real world. And so you'll have a character who is super important die and it's exciting and it's shocking because you didn't want this character to die or you can't imagine how the novel could go on now that they're dead. 
But the thing is that it's the the sheer surprise of the event is what drives that series, I find. And that's plot. Plot should emerge from character, but people develop plots and then fit characters into it. And then uh, you can see where it's going. It, I'm sorry, but you can never tell where things are going in Song of Ice and Fire. Probably to Martin's detriment, ultimately, because he can't finish the series. He basically said, I think, recently, the only way I could finish the series is to write until everybody's dead. And unfortunately, they keep mm. having kids, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Much so, like life itself. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. so what I'm saying is I love plot. Too. I love the exciting event in a story, obviously. I love the plot twist. I love the, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. I love the feeling of what's going to happen next. But to me, if you're going to front load plot as a writer, um, it, it, you won't get that. You won't get as exciting uh, a story as you would get if you just um, allowed the characters to go where they will and surprise you. Because when they surprise you, they'll surprise your reader. Um, there's a, another interview with Martin that I read, or maybe I read about it, I can't remember, but he has a theory of, of writing. He's like, there are two types of writers in fantasy or in science fiction, speculative fiction. There are gardeners and architects. I think it would extend to all sorts of fiction. And he says he's a gardener. A gardener will, you know, put around in one part of the garden, then go to another and kind of look at the whole thing and then work on a little detail here, work on a little detail there. There's a non-linearity to what a gardener does. The right. architect has to have it all in his head before, right? And then, or her head. And then the building happens in accordance with the plan. I guess there's a kind of Dionysian Apollonian thing going on there. Composition and improvisation, to put in musical terms. Exactly. Both of those have advantages. And of course, both of those approaches have produced great works of fiction. Um, I tend to think of Tolstoy more as an architect and Dostoevsky more as a gardener. But uh, it, it, it seems like the, um, and this is the, the only reason why I, where I'm going like, to like plant my flag on the gardener side or on the world builder side or on the ergodic side. The only reason I'm doing that is because it is, that approach is so threatened by our, our, our culture industry, right? Which tends mm. to favor the, the architectural side. Because if you're going to invest money in a series of novels or even more in a movie, you want to know where things are going. Uh, you want to, you want people who are basically illiterate producers. You want illiterate people to be able to know exactly what your story is about after page five. So you can't garden. Um, it's the same problem we have with music where, um, was it, uh, uh, no improvisation. Yeah. Mike, like, I mean, it's so much, so much pop song making is like trying to get improvisation out of the picture so that we have, of course, uh, a, re a smoothly engineerable and replicable, entertainment object yeah I, I had the wonderful honor and opportunity to have a little discussion with mike large last year who is um with and michael garfield um mike large is the partner of peter gabriel of all people real world real world studios in london and uh he was observing that if you know pink floyd could never release shine on you crazy diamond now I mean, the first chord change is like four well, minutes into could, the song. They could release it and it would be like on Spotify with like 10,000 downloads it, or something. It, yeah. that, that's his point. Now, there are yeah. musical genres that, you know, people get into ambient music and maybe there, but that 
then they wouldn't fit there because there's a chord change and there's a song after. <laughs> you know, it's this idea of like of gardening, of putting around, of taking your time with something, of of you know stepping away from the for the story for a chapter to describe Paris as it appeared in the year I don't remember what it was thirteen something, uh, in Hunchback of Notre Dame or or. Or in Moby Dick, you know, Herman Melville, the ultimate ergodic novel, you know, the the chapter on whale blubber, you know, like, like <laughs> let's just take a moment here and just look at how weird, weird whale blubber is or the color white, you know, I'm going to put 10 pages into this and I can only do this because there's a story. Otherwise you would never mm-hmm. read my article. It's like I, he could have, in Harper's Bazaar, he could have just put in a, an, an essay on whiteness, you know, um, right. but in the novel, suddenly it makes sense and it resonates with the story and it allows you to go explore things and to to digress and to go down you know strange pathways and make discoveries you could not make in any other way and that sort of literature that sort of of storytelling in the broader, broader sense is is super under threat today um and it's it's just one other symptom of a of a of a malignancy that infects our culture, I think, when it comes well, to thinking about the okay. world. Okay, boy, I'm in a mood to argue with you today. Sure, uh, go so ahead. I, <laughs> you didn't see his facial expression, dear <laughs> listener, but he had this look like, fine, whatever, <laughs> asshole. Not at all. No, let's argue about a, this. Take a huge draw on his vape pen. It's like, <laughs> all right, gotta, gotta get I'm ready for this crazy behind bullshit. behind my cloud of vapor, yeah. <laughs> um... I think I totally get what you're saying. And I think like, if I think about Marvel type movies or pop song production, uh, where you see, or, or any number of things where you see like the, the, the efficient streamlining of a kind of industrial process of manufacture for low information voters, mm. for people with limited investment, like, you know, yes, then those are strong forces against the kind of aesthetic we're talking about and that we both value that kind of very world buildy um and very character driven uh kind of gardening as opposed to architecture sort yeah. of approach architecture is always going to be well loved by by consumer capitalism because it's just like have a plan yeah. execute the plan yeah. have a have a plan that's r- reliably and repeatably executable exactly however to get back to where i started when i started talking about henry jenkson's this whole argument had to do with video games and video games that is a huge fucking part of the entertainment world and it's weird that video games are still somewhat siloed off as a kind of specialty thing that's like that's for like nerds that's nerd shit um even though in terms of the amount of money the video game industry makes is enormous but like video game industry awards are not uh, paid attention to by mainstream media the way, you know, the Oscars are, right. right? So there's still a little bit of, and maybe that's just because it's a young medium. But like video games are, they can't help but be ergodic. Uh, there are, of course, video games that basically keep you on uh, on um, trolley tracks where, you know, games that are very much close to, closer to the kind of visual novel uh, one game I've been playing lately, Kentucky Route Zero, is a good example of this. Um, and I don't really mind with some games like that. Kentucky Route Zero is super imaginative and it doesn't bother me. 
But uh, nevertheless, those exceptions aside, like even bad video games can't kind of help but give you these ergodic texts that you have to traverse on your own. And I feel like the very prevalence, the enormousness of the video game zone, even if it's a low, it's lower valued by um, uh, people who make decisions of how many column inches to give cultural phenomena in the New York Times or whatever. Regardless of that, I think that video games have quietly been just rewiring everybody's brains for decades. And one thing I've noticed, this sounds like a non sequitur, but it isn't. For years, I've been serving on the department admissions committee, the admissions committee for the IU musicology department. Not mm. every year, but many, many years of the last 15 that I've been working here. And I always ask the same question. So anybody who's thinking about applying to IU for musicology would do well to prepare based on what I'm about to tell you. I always ask the question that I asked you at the beginning of this conversation, JF, read any good books lately. I am most interested in what people are reading when they don't have to read people's non-essential reading. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always encourage people to tell me about books that they read, that they're into that don't have that. They're not reading because of class because they have to, but just because they want to. And what I have noted over the years is overwhelmingly both men and women, almost invariably people will talk about fantasy literature. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a smattering of people who really love Harry Potter, but like, it's much broader than just Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Um, people, if you find out what they're, um, and, and when I say people, the kind of people who might apply for a humanities program in graduate school, uh, that's sort of specific, but I have a feeling it also is a fairly representative selection of like people coming out of their undergrads, people with a, a love of reading, a, an incredibly high proportion of them love reading ergodic texts, love reading. But I don't think most fantasy novels being published now are ergodic, ergodic at all. I think most of them are just plotty derivative formulas. But yeah, I don't want to disagree but, with you, though. I think you're right. Yeah, but I mean, it's e even, okay, even if we're talking about like the most uh, mainstream fantasy series of all, Harry Potter, like I have actually read almost all of those novels because I read them to my kids when they were younger. Um, once it got into more like high school drama, um, they just read that stuff themselves and, and I uh, happily stopped reading them because I don't, I'm not a big fan of the series. Not a big fan of the series. And I don't know, we could sit here and talk about how it's plotty or whatever, or the characters are unconvincing to us. I don't even have an opinion. But I have to say, even if you want to say that Harry Potter and that series is like a degraded version of fantasy and you can do way better, wouldn't even argue with that. Nevertheless, you have to... Uh, you have to agree that this is exactly the same kind of text that Henry Jenkins is on about when he talks about uh, texts that are... Um, they're still you know, ergodic, even, yeah. They're still... Well, well, in the sense that they present you with a world, yep. certain things happen in that world, and we're, we're being frog-marched through those events, and it's all happening on a plot timeline. Sure, but the world itself 
is something that is prior to all of those happenings and all and and the world is the thing that it's the enabling condition of the plot that's what i'm talking about and so I'm, what i'm just trying to argue is that the very like the very existence of video games as a very popular medium itself has created a condition of people feeling that it's kind of normal to read a novel where uh, the plot and the character is secondary to the world. Sorry, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, I I disagree um, because I think you're right about video games. And I think the video games have ended up being the medium where that natural and uh, irrepressible human longing for worlds, the, the longing we feel whenever we look at a distant um you know, a distant sunset or mist in the distance. We have a, a feeling, we look at landscapes and we want to go into them. This is something that's, that capitalism will not eradicate from us. And so insofar as this is, this is uh, something that we feel that we are, that, that, that is in us, yes, it's going to keep cropping up in art in some form or fashion. But the, the, I, would, I would argue that, and I'm not going to argue against video games because I don't know very many video games. The ones I've played are the ones that were recommended to me and I thought they were freaking masterpieces. So I think that video games are absolutely an art form. But I think that the ergodic has its own pitfalls and traps. And I think one of the traps that ergodic literature, ergodic art tends to fall into, which aligns it perfectly with capitalism, is wish fulfillment. It gets you to be what you can't mm. be in real life. And so, right. yeah, you're in this world because you're the star because, or you're, you're, you know, the character with whom you're identifying you're as the, the chosen star. One. You're the chosen one. And that's a problem with ergodic literature that um, is going to make it as problematic, quote unquote, you know, in a certain context as any other type of literature. I'm not saying that ergodic literature is automatically better. And I'm not saying that setting is no longer important. Obviously, setting is super important. Look at the efforts that, you know, Hollywood puts into backdrops for films. I mean, obviously, the feeling of a world is very important. But to me, they keep wrecking it with plot. They never let us linger in the world. They're just moving mm. us through it. We're traversing worlds still, but we're traversing them at light speed. Or we're traversing them while trying to train our sensory motor apparatus to hit the right buttons at the right time. And the world, you'll never have, you know, the blubber chapter in Moby Dick. You know, you'll never have the 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 type of of digression that you find in ergodic literature. Um, you still have it, you know, like there are still books coming out that do this and, and I'm not saying it's gone. I'm saying it's under threat. Um, I, and maybe this is my experience as a screenwriter having, you know, having had the unfortunate experience of like participating in screenwriting workshops and courses and reading books on the subject that kind of biases me to one side of the situation. Obviously there's more going on. Um, so yeah, that's not a disagreement between us. Um, I still think that ultimately we tend to think of our very lives as plots. And so, uh, the problem goes much deeper than the quality of our entertainment. Uh, this is something in Byung Chul Han gets into our entire lives are conceived as a kind of architectural project. How do I, you know, design myself into the person I want to be? I'm this type of person, therefore this is how I will react to X, or these are the things I can do to improve my, you know, myself as a kind of character in an imaginary video game that we're all playing. So I think that the the problem of linearity, of goal-driven action, of 
moving along some grooves or ruts that have been designed and, and, and put there for you is a huge problem with our culture in general. And you see it in the arts, you see it all over the place. And I think it'll take more than immersive video games to kind of wake us up to the brilliance of the blubber chapter, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah, but I feel like we're talking about two different things. There's the blubber chapter or what the blubber chapter symbolizes or represents, which is the ability of certain brave creators to go completely off of the trolley tracks uh, and, and, and to be free. I mean, if you're, on if you're running on tram tracks, uh, you're not free. You can only go in one predetermined direction and you can rig up like as in, uh, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean type rides at the, at a, an amusement park. You know, you can rig up your trolley ride so that you're, you know, careening through exciting adventures and you feel like you're right in the middle of it, but you're still on trolley tracks and you can't get off of them. Um, and so you're talking about artists who suspend uh, that kind of preordained movement so that we can move, as it were, laterally and not simply forward. Uh, yeah. And we can stop and inhabit a space we can truly inhabit a space and that can be a space of description or a space of contemplation um uh a space of evocation um of allusions but uh not something reducible to the linear mechanics of the plot right but then we're but then that's 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 sort of on the level of talking about a cre you know creators who are always that's always going to be a, a kind of a an iffy move, right? Uh, iffy in the sense of like, you don't know if it's going to work or not. Saying experimental is maybe pitching it too high, but, uh, you know, yeah, trying your luck. It'll all be, always be a kind of trying your luck kind of maneuver, right? But then when we're talking about simply the more general prevalence of a space of spatial storytelling, storytelling that's unthinkable without a kind of always already prior spatialization that's different and that's a much lower bar and that's the bar that is met by like just the mere existence of video games um but the fact that those are distinct things doesn't mean that they don't talk to one another they aren't maybe points on a continuum and i'm just suggesting that mm. the prevalence of a new medium uh, that is all, always already skewed towards spatialized storytelling. I don't actually think that it would make it any more likely, statistically or whatever, that an artist is going to make that brave choice to step off the the trolley tracks and and do some, make a make a jack move, make some kind of sideways move. Um, but I do think that it will lead to a culture in which people who read and people who take movies seriously are going to be much more tolerant of such, uh, of such moves. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think I agree with you with that there. I, I would say though, that the blubber chapter was by no means experimental in the context of 19th century literature. I mean, there were lots of novels back then that digressed into the minutia of a particular, you know, nook of its, of its aesthetic world. People read for that um it was yeah. it was just the way novels were written i mean even in dickens you find that sort of thing 
Um, and you don't find Especially it in, in, novels, Dickens. Yeah. in novels today. So I don't think that, that Melville was being some kind of maverick genius when he went into the blubber. He was doing what novels did. It's just that his tone is so um, kind of wild and weird that that's what struck people at the time as being strange. It was his, but not the fact that he would devote a chapter to blubber. Whereas today, that chapter will be systematically excised by 99.9% of editors or publishers on this planet, working within the Anglosphere that we, you know, inhabit. Um, so there's been a cultural shift, I think. But I will grant you this. I will grant you that video games do, and vi role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. I mean, I think the D&D Reddit has like 2.5 million members. You know, there's a lot of people playing mm -hmm. these games. Uh, and even if the, the problem of kind of a malignant narrative exists in those worlds as well, I think, um, uh, the idea that, you, that nothing has any intrinsic value, that every aspect of an aesthetic world must have extrinsic extrinsic value by virtue of it how it serves the story or serves the plot i think this is a really deep problem that's um limiting artistic expression on some fronts today i think